Hello and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and in this episode we're going to look at the passage of the Second Crusade through the Byzantine Empire and on into Anatolia, which as you know from previous episodes was a major war zone between the Byzantines and the Turks. As you'll hear, hopes were high for the Second Crusade because the two strongest kings in Europe, King Louis VII of France and King Conrad of Germany, were leading substantial armies. A point worth noting is that the presence of royalty on the Second Crusade is very different from the First Crusade, which was led by the great feudal lords, mainly from France and Norman Sicily. It's also interesting because the difference is partly due to the growing power of monarchies in Europe in the 50 years between the First and Second Crusades. But, as you'll hear, despite being led by the kings of France and Germany, the Second Crusade quickly ran into some very major problems. As before, I'll read extracts from my abridged version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful History of the Crusades. As you'll hear, Runciman, who died 20 years ago, was the first historian to really change our view of the Crusaders, showing them as driven by greed and self-interest as much as by their piety. In contrast, he was a great admirer of the Byzantines, who he saw as a much more sophisticated civilization and better able to navigate the differences between the worlds of Christianity and Islam. Hope you enjoy it. When the news of the coming of the crusade first reached Constantinople, the Byzantine Emperor Manuel was engrossed in Anatolian affairs. Despite his father's and grandfather's campaigns, the situation in the Asiatic provinces of the Byzantine Empire was still worrying. Only the coastal districts were free from Turkish invasion. Further inland, almost yearly, a Turkish raiding force would sweep over the territory, avoiding the great fortresses and eluding the Byzantine armies. The inhabitants of the frontier lands had abandoned their villages and fled to the cities or to the coast. It was the Byzantine Emperor Manuel's policy to establish a definite frontier line, guarded by a closely knit line of forts. His diplomacy and his campaigns were aimed at securing such a line. The Turkish-Danish mend Emir Mohammed ibn Ghazi died in December 1141. He had been the chief Muslim power in Asia Minor, but his death was followed by civil wars between his sons and his brothers. Before the end of 1142, the Turkish Emirate had been split between his three sons. It was at this point that the Seljuk Sultan of Konya, Masoud, saw in the division his chance of establishing a hegemony over all the Anatolian Turks. Therefore, he invaded Turkish Danish men territory and established his control over districts as far east as the Euphrates. Frightened by his aggression, the brothers Jakob Aslan and Ein Eddalet sought the alliance of Byzantium, and by a treaty probably concluded in 1143, they became, to some degree, his vassals. The Byzantine Emperor Manuel then turned his attention towards Masoud, whose raiders had penetrated to Malagina on the road from Nicaea to Dorylaeum. He drove them back, but returned soon to Constantinople, owing to his own ill health and the fatal illness of his beloved sister Maria, whose loyalty to him had been proved when her husband, the Norman-born Caesar John Roger, had plotted for the throne 
at the time of his accession. In 1145, Masud invaded the empire again and captured the little fortress of Prakana in Azoria, thereby threatening Byzantine communications with Syria, and soon afterwards raided the Valley of the Meander almost as far as the sea. The Emperor Manuel decided that the time had come to strike boldly at Masud and to march on his capital, Konya. He had recently been married and it was said that he wished to show to his German wife the splendours of Byzantine chivalry. In the summer of 1146, he sent the Sultan a formal declaration of war and set out in gallant style along the road past Dorylaeum down to Philomelium. There, Turkish detachments attempted to check him, but were repulsed. Masoud retired towards his capital, but though he strengthened his garrison, he kept himself to the open countryside and sent urgently for reinforcements from the east. The Byzantine army encamped for several months before Konya, which was defended by the Sultana. Manuel's attitude towards his enemies was always courteous. When it was rumoured that the Sultan was killed, he sent to inform the Sultana that the story was untrue, and he attempted vainly to make his soldiers respect the Muslim tombs outside the city. But quite soon he gave the order to retire. It was said later that he'd heard rumours of the coming crusade, but he could hardly have been notified yet of the decision made at Vesele that spring. He was definitely suspicious of Sicilian intentions, and he may already have realised that something was afoot. He learnt, too, that Masoud had received a considerable addition to his army, and he was afraid of being caught with long and risky lines of communication. He retreated slowly, in perfect order, back to Byzantine territory. Before there could be another campaign against Konya, the Emperor Manuel was faced with the actual prospect of the crusade. He was disquieted with reason, for the Byzantines' experience of crusaders was not reassuring. When, therefore, Masoud sent to him in the spring of 1147 to suggest a truce and to offer to give back the fortress of Prakana and his other recent conquests, Manuel agreed. Manuel was now completely taken up with the coming of the Second Crusade. To start with the German king Conrad, Manuel's relations had hitherto been good. A common fear of Roger of Sicily had brought them together, and Manuel had recently married Conrad's sister-in-law. But the behaviour of the German army in the Balkans and Conrad's refusal to take the route across the Hellespont instead of going to Constantinople alarmed him. When Conrad arrived before Constantinople, he was allotted as his residence the suburban palace of Philopatium near the land walls and his army encamped around him. But within a few days the Germans so pillaged the palace that it was no longer habitable and Conrad moved across the head of the Golden Horn to the palace of Pricridium opposite to the Fanar quarter in Constantinople. Meanwhile, the German soldiers committed violence against the local population and Byzantine soldiers were sent out to repress them. A series of skirmishes ensued. When the Byzantine Emperor Manuel asked for redress from the German King Conrad, at first he said that the outrages were unimportant. Then he angrily threatened to come back next year and to actually take over Constantinople. 
It seems that the Byzantine Empress, Conrad's sister-in-law, was able to pacify the two monarchs. The Emperor Manuel, who had been urging the Germans to cross quickly over the Bosphorus as he feared the consequences of the junction with the French, suddenly found the Germans amenable, as the Germans were already beginning to quarrel with the first French arrivals. An outward concord was restored and King Conrad and the German army passed over to Chalcedon, enriched by costly Byzantine presence. Conrad himself received some handsome horses, but he refused the suggestion that he should leave some of his men to take service with the emperor and should in return be allotted some of the Byzantine troops in Cilicia, an arrangement that the Emperor Manuel would have found convenient for his war against Roger of Sicily. When King Conrad arrived in Chalcedon, he asked Manuel to provide him with guides to take him across Anatolia, and Manuel entrusted the task to the head of the Varangian guard, Stephen. At the same time, he advised the Germans to avoid the road straight across the peninsula, but to go by the coast road round to Italia, thus keeping within Byzantine-controlled land. He also suggested that it would be wise to send home all the non-combatant pilgrims whose presence would only embarrass the army. King Conrad took no notice of this advice, but set out to Nicaea. When his army arrived there, he thought again and decided to divide the expedition. Otto of Freisingham was to take a party, including most of the non-combatants, by road through Laodicea to Atalia, while he himself and the main fighting force would follow the route of the First Crusade through the interior. King Conrad's army left Nicaea on the 15th of October, with Stephen the Varangian as chief guide. For the next eight days, while they were in the emperor's territory, they were well fed, though they later complained that his agents mixed chalk with the flour that was provided and also gave them coins of a debased value. But they made no provisions for their march into Turkish territory. In particular, they lacked water. Therefore, on the 25th of October, as they reached the little river Bathys near to Dorylaeum, close to the site of the great crusader victory half a century before in the First Crusade, the whole Seljuk Turkish army fell upon them. The German infantry were weary and thirsty. Many of the knights had just dismounted to rest their exhausted horses. The sudden, swift and repeated attacks of the light Turkish horsemen caught them unawares. It was a massacre rather than a battle. King Conrad vainly tried to rally his men, but by evening he was in full flight with the few survivors on the road back to Nicaea. He had lost nine-tenths of his soldiers and all the contents of his camp. The booty was sold by the Turks in the bazaars throughout the Muslim East as far as Persia. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go.
Meanwhile, King Louis and the French army had passed through Constantinople. They arrived there on the 4th of October to find their advance guard and the army of Lorraine disgusted on the one hand by the savagery of the Germans and on the other by the news of the Byzantine Emperor Manuel's truce with the Turks. Despite the pleading of King Louis's envoy, the Byzantine authorities made difficulties about the junction of the Lorrainers with the French. The Bishop of Longres, with the unchristian intolerance of a monk of Clairvaux, suggested to the king that he should change his policy and make an alliance with Roger of Sicily against the perfidious Byzantines. But Louis was too scrupulous to listen to the disappointment of his barons. He was satisfied by his reception at the Byzantine court and preferred the suave advice of the humanist Bishop of Lisieux. He was lodged at Philippatium, which had been cleaned after the German occupation, and he was welcomed to banquets at the imperial palace and conducted by the Byzantine emperor around the sites of the great city of Constantinople. Many of his nobility were equally charmed by the attentions paid to them, but the Emperor Manuel saw to it that the French army passed soon over the Bosphorus, and when it was established at Chalcedon, he used the pretext of a riot caused by a Flemish pilgrim who thought he'd been cheated to cut off supplies from the French. Although King Louis promptly had the culprit hanged, the Byzantine Emperor Manuel would not resupply the French army until King Louis at last swore to restore to the Byzantine Empire its lost possessions. And he also agreed that his barons should pay homage in advance for any areas of the empire that they might occupy. The French nobility didn't like it, but Louis considered the demand reasonable, considering his urgent need for Byzantine assistance, particularly as rumours came through of the disastrous German defeat at the hands of the Turks. Therefore, at the beginning of November, the French army reached Nicaea. There they learnt definitely of King Conrad's defeat. Frederick of Swabia rode into the French camp to tell the story and asked King Louis to come at once to see King Conrad. Louis hastened to the German headquarters and the two kings consulted together. They decided both to take the coast route southward, keeping within Byzantine territory. For the moment... There was friendship between the French and the German armies. When the Germans could find no food in the area where they were encamped, as the French had taken all that was available, and they therefore began to raid the neighbouring villages, Byzantine police troops at once attacked them. They were rescued by a French detachment under the Count of Soissons, who hurried up at King Conrad's request. King Conrad was meantime able to restore some sort of order among his troops. Most of the pilgrims who survived left him to struggle back to Constantinople. The French and German armies marched together to Ephesus on the coast, where King Conrad's health was so bad that he remained there. Hearing this, the Byzantine Emperor Manuel sent him costly presents and persuaded him to return to Constantinople, where he received him kindly and took him to lodge in the palace. The Emperor Manuel was passionately interested in medicine and insisted on being his guest's own doctor. 
King Conrad actually recovered and was deeply touched by the attention shown him by the Byzantine emperor and the Byzantine empress. It was during this visit that a marriage was arranged between his brother, Henry Duke of Austria, and the emperor's niece, Theodora. The German king and his household remained in Constantinople until the beginning of March 1148, when a Byzantine squadron conveyed them to Palestine. Meanwhile, during the four days that he spent at Ephesus, the French king Louis received a letter from the Byzantine Emperor Manuel informing him that the Turks were on the warpath and advising him to avoid any conflict with them, but to keep as far as possible within the range of shelter afforded by the Byzantine fortresses along the coast road. The Emperor Manuel clearly feared that the French would suffer at the hands of the Turks and he would be blamed. At the same time, he had no wish with the Sicilian war on his hands that anything should occur to break his peace with the Turkish Sultan. King Louis returned no answer, nor did he reply when the Emperor Manuel wrote to warn him that the Byzantine authorities could not prevent their people from taking vengeance for the damage caused to them by the French crusaders. The discipline of the French army was breaking down, and complaints were reaching Constantinople of its complete lawlessness. The French army wound its way up the valley of the Meander, and eventually reached the Byzantine sea town of Italia. There, the Byzantine governor was an Italian called Landolf. On the Byzantine emperor's orders, he did what he could to supply the French crusaders. But the city of Italia was not a, a large city with great resources of food. It was set in a poor countryside, ravaged recently by the Turks. Winter stocks were low, and the German pilgrims had taken previously what there had been to spare. It was no wonder that few provisions were available, therefore, for the French, and that prices had soared high. But to the angry, disappointed Frenchman, all this was just another proof of Byzantine treachery. The French King Louis now decided that the journey must be pursued by sea, and he negotiated with the Byzantine governor Landolf for ships. It was not easy at that time of year to assemble a flotilla at a port on the southern coast of modern Turkey. While the transports were being collected, the Turks came down and made a sudden attack on the Crusader camp. Once again, the French blamed the Byzantine who indeed probably made no effort to defend the French, to whose presence they owed these Turkish raids. When the ships arrived, there were too few to take all of the French. King Louis therefore filled them with his own household and as many cavalry men as could be taken, and sailed off to St. Simeon, where he arrived on the 19th of March. To salve his conscience for his desertion of the rest of his army, the French king gave the Byzantine governor the sum of 500 marks, asking him to care for the sick and wounded within the French army and to send on the remainder, if possible, by sea. The counts of Flanders and Bourbon were left in charge with the Byzantine governor. The day after the king's departure, the Turks swept down into the plain and attacked the camp again. Without sufficient French cavalry, it was impossible to drive them off effectively. So the French crusaders obtained permission to take refuge within the Byzantine walls. 
There they were well treated and their sick were given treatment and the Byzantine governor Landolf hastily tried to collect more ships to ferry them over to the Holy Land but he simply couldn't find enough ships. So the remaining French noblemen Thierry of Flanders and Archimbald of Bourbon followed their king's example and themselves embarked with their friends and the remaining French horsemen on these ships telling the foot soldiers and the pilgrims to make their way by land as best they could. Deserted by their leaders, the unhappy remnant of the French refused to stay in the Byzantine camp and set out along the eastern road, ignorant, undisciplined and distrustful of their Byzantine guides. They were continually harassed by the Turks, with whom they were convinced the Byzantines were in league, so that the miserable Frenchmen, with what remained of King Conrad's German infantry dragging on behind, made their painful way to Cilicia. Weeks later, less than half of them arrived in the crusader city of Antioch. One of the main consequences of the disastrous progress of the French army through Anatolia was that the French King Louis blamed the Byzantines. This was the beginning of a major rift between Byzantium and the French that would ultimately lead to the French attack on Constantinople itself in the Fourth Crusade. One of the main criticisms that Louis made of the Byzantines was that they had a peace treaty with the Turks while the French army was travelling through Anatolia. But the reason for this, in fact, lay with the Norman attack on the western provinces of the Byzantine Empire. For in the autumn of 1147, the Norman King Roger of Sicily captured the island of Corfu and from there he sent a Norman army to raid the Byzantine Greek peninsula. The Byzantine city of Thebes was sacked and thousands of its workers kidnapped to help the nascent silk industry of Palermo in Sicily and the Byzantine city of Corinth itself, the chief fortress of the Greek peninsula, was taken and bared of all of its treasures. Laden with spoil, the Sicilian Normans fell back to Corfu, which they planned to hold as a permanent threat to the Byzantine Empire and a stranglehold on the Adriatic Sea, which was largely controlled by the Byzantines. It was the imminence of the Norman attack that had decided the Byzantine Emperor Manuel to retire from the Turkish capital Konya in 1146, which he was besieging, and to accept the Turkish Sultan's overtures for peace next year, if the Emperor Manuel was to rank as a traitor to Christendom, as the French described him, it was rather the Norman King Roger who was the real traitor to Christendom. For the truth is that it was the French and German crusaders themselves who were responsible for the disasters that befell them in Anatolia. The Byzantine emperor could indeed have done more to help them, but only at a grave risk to his own empire. For the real issue lay deeper. Was it to the better interests of Christendom that there should be occasional gallant expeditions to the east, led by a mixture of unwise idealists and crude adventurers to succour an intrusive state whose existence depended on Muslim disunity? Or was it better that Byzantium, which had been for so long the guardian of the eastern frontier of Europe, should continue to play its part unembarrassed by the Crusaders from the West. The story of the Second Crusade showed even more clearly than that of the First that the two policies were incompatible. 
When, 600 years later, Constantinople itself had fallen to the Turks and they were thundering at the gates of Vienna, it would be possible to see which policy was right. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd be hugely grateful if you left any ratings. Thank you so much. And I also just mentioned that if you like audiobooks, my own book on Byzantium and the First Crusade called The Byzantine World War is available on Amazon uh, on Audible. Sorry for that plug. And in the next episode, we'll hear the rest of what happened to the Second Crusade.